All right, glad you guys are here. Like I said, we're working through James. Um, Tonight we're in James chapter 2, and James chapter 2 is actually broken down into two really manageable um, sections. So if, if you're familiar with the book of James, it, it stands out from the rest of the books in the New Testament, especially the letters, because um, James just writes in a different way. He's got a different, got a different style. When you, read, when you read Paul, you feel comfortable with his logic. He's got a flow to it. He's building on things. I mean, we're working through Romans right now on Sunday mornings, and you kind of know where he's heading. You know where he's going. And you know, especially, that um, you can't just take something he says out of context, but that it really depends very much on what he's built uh, his argument on up to that point. James writes differently, right? You read it, and it feels very disjointed at times. Uh, One minute he's talking about taking care of the poor. The next minute he's talking about um, what it means to pray with faith. And then the next minute he's warning against um, being, uh, putting too much of our dependence in riches and wealth. And uh, he's just kind of all over the place. And, and in this chapter especially, he talks about faith and works. And it seems like a really big discussion that just kind of crops up out of nowhere. Um, but James has, he has some, some thoughts in mind. And, and honestly, it's not too different um, from what we find in the Gospels especially. Like if you're familiar with the Sermon on the Mount, you know how it was recorded. It, it seems kind of bouncing all over the place. One minute Jesus is talking about adultery, the next minute he's talking about being a hypocrite, and then, and then he's talking about how to, be, uh, how to be blessed, how to live the good life. What does that look like? Blessed are the so-and-so and the so-and-so. And it seems all over the place. And yet it's grounded in something uh, much more um, uh, stable throughout all that he talks about. The kingdom of God. What's it like to be God's people? What does it mean to obey the Lord, to be an obedient subject? And James is thinking along those lines as well. Um, When James is writing, he's writing to a people who, as we saw last week in just the opening verses, they're scattered all over the known world. He expects that Christians all over the place will be reading this letter. And he's writing to them knowing as well that, that they probably feel a bit out of place uh, you know, and even torn between cultures. Many of them probably have a Jewish background and here they are living among Gentiles, Romans. Those are different cultures. Um, so, so how can we as the people of God live in a world that, that just doesn't operate by the same rules? Hopefully you see that this is actually very, very practical for us today. Um, that as we think deeply about what it means to be the people of God, to live like the people of God, um, it, it should help us to navigate the times that, that we live in now. So James chapter 2, uh, it begins with a, um, well, it, it begins with a story uh, or, an, or an illustration. Let, let me read James chapter 2. I'll just read the first 13 verses and then We'll stop and talk about it probably a little bit along the way and then have some concluding, uh, some concluding thoughts. And then I'll, I'll pause for a second as well just to uh, talk with you guys and see what questions you might have and things that kind of crop up in your mind as we go. So let me, let me read James chapter 2. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly 
And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, oh, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? But you've dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Let's pause there instead. So James, he, he, he sets a scene for us. I mean, it, it's kind of like a, like a bad joke, you know? I mean, so, so these two guys walk into a church, right? And, and one guy is dressed shabbily. He's in rags. Uh, and then another guy walks in, and he's dressed in fine clothing. I mean, he looks like a million bucks, and he probably has a million bucks, um, or whatever they had, a million denarii. And, uh, and, and so he, you, you're faced with this, this decision. And James is, this isn't just an illustration. I mean, James is saying this because he knows what's going on uh, among these people that he's writing to. He knows the temptation that they face culturally uh, to, to how they're going to deal with this situation. And, and so he, he paints a picture. Two guys come in, one's dressed well, one's not and then he says, something, something happens, or you're tempted to do something when this happens. You, you might give one guy, the guy who's dressed nicely, uh, the, the nicest chair in the room. You know, treat him with, with, with honor and respect and, and doting on him. You're know, just hanging on every word. They said, laughing at all of his stupid jokes. You know, this guy comes in and he owns the place. Just because of how he looks, because of what that represents. This guy's wealthy, he's important. But then somebody else comes in who's not, and instead of giving him uh, even a, a seat at all at the table, uh, your direct, directive to him might be, well, why don't you go stand over there? I'm glad you're here. Why don't you go stand over here out of sight? Or even, in my mind, it seems even worse. You know, or, you know what, why don't you just sit at my feet? I mean, how horrible. But James is he's pointing out a very real decision that his people might have actually dealt with, um, that culturally this would have been kind of normal. Somebody walks in who's insignificant, unimportant, or unvaluable to you, and, and you just kind of, you treat them that way. And, and, a, and a socially acceptable way to do that might literally be to have them stand off to the side uh, or, or even sit at your feet so that you can focus on the, the people who really, who really matter. And so James accuses them in this illustration. He says, look, if you were to do that, if you were to give a seat to someone wealthy and rich and, and important looking, but then ignore someone who wasn't, uh, you would be discriminating, is, is kind of the, the terminology that he gives. He, he calls it showing partiality. Um, and and that, that's, there's a problem. There's a problem. Um, he even calls them, and this is such extreme language when we think about it, he calls them judges with evil thoughts. If you were to do this, if this is the way that you live, this is the way you evaluate people, you're, you're, you're showing partiality, you're showing yourself to be a judge with evil thoughts. And that language just sounds so extreme. Judges with evil thoughts. No, man, I'm just picking kind of the people that, 
that I like. I mean, we can't talk to everybody. There's some people that, that I've got business to attend to or some people that I'm just picking up the conversation I had with them last week or, or whatever, you know, judges with evil thoughts just because I've got friends. And that, that might be kind of the way they, they would respond or even the way that we might respond to a charge like that. Um, but they're judges with evil thoughts. And just for, for the discrimination that they, that they put forward. And, and so when we read this, you know, we're probably tempted to just kind of gloss over it. You know, we're, we're tempted to, to look at it and say, well, I, I don't really... I don't really do that. I'm not, maybe I'm not that blatant about it, you know. I don't, I don't look at people and see what they're wearing and determine if they're a relationship worth having. But there, there are subtle ways, right, for us to, to show partiality, for us to show favoritism, to discriminate among different kinds of people, even within the church, even gathered here tonight. We've had to navigate that, whether we, whether we realize it or not. Um, let's, let's just think about it. Um, there, there are different bases, there are different reasons why we might discriminate, there are different ways that we might evaluate people and, and their, their, their importance or their worth toward us. Here in James, he's talking about a very clearly socioeconomic status that becomes sort of the, the determination for who's worth hanging out with and who's not. You know, and so, so someone comes in and they look rich and wealthy, and so I'm going to spend all my time engage with them, because these are the people who mean something and can give me something in return. Um, so that may have been important to them in that day, and, and right, it is kind of important to us today too, isn't it? I mean, just, you know, let's just pause for a second. I mean, think about it. What, what are the reasons why you choose to hang out with the people that you do, even within the church? Now, who are the people you feel most comfortable with? Even within the church, who are the people you invite to lunch, for example? Uh, who, who are the people that you're willing to sit with in the Sunday morning service? So these decisions, they seem kind of harmless, so they seem maybe just benign. But they can reflect very, very often the things that we value, the, the people that we value, and, and what we value in people. So socioeconomic status, that, that may be one. And we can see maybe how that would play out in our own lives. But um, you know, what about appearances? Uh, just, just the way people carry themselves. How they're dressed, how, how clean they look, you know? Is their hair together? Um, you know? uh, is, is she just wearing yoga pants for like the fifth day in a row, you know? Uh, may call for an intervention. I don't know if it necessarily means, though, that it needs discrimination, right? But we, we look at people and we just kind of assess what, what's going on, even just by a glance. Um, it, it can be appearance. It can be someone's personality. You know, maybe, maybe somebody has a personality that kind of grates against you, irritates you. Uh, maybe they're just always down in the dumps. Um, you know, th- this isn't to say, this isn't to excuse like sinful things about people, right? Some personalities, some dispositions are actually rooted in, in unbelief and sin, you know? Um, there, there are some things that we do need to, to weed out as believers, but, but they're not things that we should ignore, and they're not things that we should use as a basis for whether we spend time with certain people. Um, 
You know, there, there, there are people that you know, right? Uh, there are people that I know who just, they just kind of rub you the wrong way. Even within the church. Right? You know, we got get north-south. Yeah, I mean, even within the church, right? I mean, it's okay. Right? Let's, let's, just, let's be honest. Let's admit it. Let's put it out there. Um, but, but that can be a reason why we, we tend to avoid one another. To kind of skirt around one another or take the other end of the kids' men hall or serve in that room instead of this one. So there, there, there are those sort of reasons, personality traits. Um, and then there are some that are maybe a bit more, uh, maybe a bit more obvious, maybe ones that, that we tend to talk about more as a, just as a culture, uh, even as a church culture, um, like, like gender, right? men and women. Um, yeah, I think this is actually really prevalent like within Reformed circles and, 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 and churches even like ours. Um, do, we, do we value the voices and opinions and, and sanctification and the faith of people of the opposite gender? Right? I mean, guys, um, when was the last time you were really truly ministered to by, by a woman? Not just, not just your wife, right? Not just your mom. But like, when was the last time you allowed a, 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 a woman within the church to just be a blessing to you? You know, I mean, how often do we kind of, I mean, I, I'm, just, I'm just putting this out there. I think a lot of times we put up barriers towards people based on things that really aren't biblical. And they're, they're barriers that we may not even realize we have. I mean, James is writing to these people about you may see a rich man walk in and you just, you just flock to him and then someone who's not quite as wealthy looking, you ignore. And, and we may assume that, that, well, that's intentional. And that's clearly a, a, a purpose, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, no distinction that we make with each other really has to be intentional for it to exist. So, I mean, think about it. I mean, you know, do, do you value the voices, guys, of, of the women that you know in the church, of your sisters in the Lord? Do you value their voices? Do you value the, 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 the things, that the gifts that they have? And what, what the ladies bring into this congregation? Um, ladies, do, do you value the, 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 the sanctification and the, the, the work and the, and the, the faith of, of the men in this church that you know? Or, or that you don't. You know, I, I think about that, and, and I think a lot of times, um, I mean, if I'm honest, I, I tend to gravitate more towards the voices of guys. I want to hear what they have to say. I want to hear you know, their experience. But, but yet, <laughs> that, that may not actually be right. To, to, just, to just always kind of go toward that, but then kind of, hesitate or, or try to I'm not, you know, be maybe unsure about the, the, the voices of, of others. You know, and this isn't just true of gender, it's true of, of race as well. Um, you know, James here, he, he could very well be dealing with a, a semi-ethnic racial issue himself. Because a lot of the wealthy people in this society would not have necessarily been the Jewish Christians that they knew, but, but just the Roman Gentile movers and shakers in whatever city they found themselves in. That's a national ethnic identity there. And it, and it bears asking of ourselves, you know, do, do we value the voices of, of those who don't look like us? 
You know, do we value their experience of, of the gospel, their experience of grace, their experience of the Lord's work in their lives? Are, are we teachable? Uh, you know, white brothers and sisters, are, are you listening to our black and brown brothers and sisters? You know, is that valuable to you? Not just, you know, oh, yeah, no, I hear what they have to say, but I really need to kind of focus. No, are you, are you, really, are you really listening? And, and, and vice versa. I, I know this is, maybe feels a bit like a tangent. My, my point, though, is to say that what James is dealing with, while we read it and we, we jump into it and we think, well, this seems kind of out of the blue, and, and it doesn't quite seem to just fit with what we just read in chapter 1, maybe, and then we, we read it, and maybe we even think to ourselves, well, I don't really show favoritism. I don't really, I don't really do that. Not intentionally. Um, well, that might be true, but, but there are a lot of ways, actually, that we, can, that we can show favoritism and partiality toward one another. And it's not always manifested in, in angry words and voice. Sometimes it can just simply be the way things are and, and just the status quo. And James is challenging these people on, on, on their status quo, right? On their kind of the way things are. Well, a rich person walks in, what are you going to do? I mean, you want to you curry up some favor, right? You never know when you're going to need their help. And that, that may have been how things worked then. But James's point is that that doesn't make it right. And, and, and so he, he fights against it, not just by telling him, well, you're wrong. But, but he goes on to say that, um, that there's a reality check in order here. You're, you're, you're ignoring, you're, you're, you're disregarding your poor brothers and sisters. And it's not right. And it's not just not right on its face. It's not right because the gospel is at stake. And, and, and so he says, um, in verse 5, Listen, my beloved brothers, hasn't God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he's promised to those who love him? And James is so clear. He says, look, you guys are seeing things from the wrong perspective. The way you're evaluating one another is, is so worldly that it completely neglects the, the faith, the very genuine, real faith that they have. It, it neglects to take into consideration the valuable, I mean, rich beyond this world's comprehension work of Christ for them. It completely disregards it. You've, you've, you've totally, you're, you're seeing things the wrong way. There's a reality out here that you're, you're completely oblivious to. And, and a lot of times people read that passage, right, and they, they hear, you know, have, hasn't God chosen the poor in faith, or the poor to be rich in faith, and they, they assume it means that, that God has, he plays favorites somehow with the poor. And I don't think that's what he's saying. I, I think he's really just saying simply, I mean, y'all, the poor too are, are valuable members of the kingdom of God. God has also actually picked them to be rich in faith. You know, it's, a, it's among their ranks that you will find people who know and love Jesus and have something to offer. You know, and, and so we need, to, we need to pay attention. We need to hear them. We need to, to give ourselves to them and, and let them be a blessing to us. And 
And so this gives a, well, it gives a new meaning to what it means then for them to disregard their brothers and sisters. This isn't just benign, neutral sort of, I've got my friends and they just don't happen to be among them. Instead, it, it actually becomes dishonor. And dishonor of the highest sort. Because if you, if you notice, James says um, that these people, these brothers and sisters, God's chosen to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. They're, they're heirs of the kingdom. You know, when, when we read the Bible, when we read letters like this, man, it's just so easy to just kind of gloss over this sort of stuff. But James is making a, a really powerful point. His point is, no matter, no matter really how the world perceives their value, I mean, these people are, are I mean, they are royalty. They're heirs of the kingdom. You know, you're, you're concerned about fawning over uh, people with earthly riches and bank accounts. And, and while you're doing that, you're completely dishonoring royalty. I mean, the contrast is so stark. And, and, it, and it just it completely reframes what James, what James's audience is, is thinking about how, about how they evaluate one another, about how they think about one another. Suddenly, they're not just dealing with Joe Schmo. They're dealing with, 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 with royalty, with heirs. And, and they're, they're heirs of, of God's kingdom. But by the work of, of Jesus, who's given them faith and called them to, to the gospel and to the, to the good news of what he's done. And, and so then, James says, meanwhile, while you're ignoring the ones who are worthy of really all of your attention. You're actually devoting yourselves towards people who are in fact opposed to you and opposed to the God that, that you claim to, to worship and, and to honor with your lives. Um, he, he says it just so bluntly. Aren't the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? And that's not a blanket statement, right? Not every rich person does that or is that, and James knows that. His point is simply to say, like, these are the ones with all the authority and power, and you see how many of them tend to use it. Why are you fawning over them? The, the people of God are here. These are the ones that our hearts should be drawn to. These are the ones that we should seek out and, and want to spend our time with and these are the ones that we should value, right? Because they, they truly are infinitely, by God's grace, valuable. Um, so he, 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 uh, he concludes this section with, uh, with a little encouragement, right? You know, the, the Puritans like to talk about when they would preach, they would, they would go through the Bible and they would find things that were the, quote, indicatives, Things that the Bible just sort of indicates or puts forward or says, you know, hey, here's the truth. Here's what God's done, right? That's the most important indicative we have is just what has God done to save sinners? But then they would always follow it up with the imperatives. So based on whatever is true, 
whatever God has done, regardless of anything we do, whatever God has done, there are some things that then we are called to do. There are, some, there are certain ways that we're called to live and to abide by. And, and so this is where James gets into that. He's just given them the indicative. You don't see rightly. You, you're not seeing people the way they're meant to be known. Right? As, as heirs of the kingdom, as people actually very wealthy in faith. And, he, and then he, he follows it up. He says in verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law, right, the royal law, according to the scripture, and he quotes here, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Uh, what's the royal law? Yeah, that's a weird, I mean, we, that's an odd phrase. That's not really how we think. We usually hear talk about the law, and, and especially if you're familiar with Paul, he's always talking about the law and how the law doesn't save us. It, it points us towards sin, and, and the law is like this, this master that is kind of overseeing our lives until we, we enter by grace into the freedom of Christ. Um, we don't often really give the law a place of, of, of reverence, right? Because we're just always so afraid of being legalistic. Um, but James is working to kind of break that down a little bit. And we're not saved by the law, by works of the law. But let's not throw the baby out with the bathwater. And, and so he calls the law royal, right? This is, this is valuable. And then he defines it as you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we've heard that, right? That, that's, that's, that comes all the way from the Old Testament. And Jesus then reiterates it throughout the Gospels. If you go to Leviticus 19, 15 through 18, uh, with me, I'll put it up on the screen. Yeah, awesome. Um, if you turn there, this is where it's, it's first mentioned. And I'm going to read all of it, Romans, uh, Leviticus 15, um, or 19, 15 through 18, uh, just to show you the, the context. He, um, he says, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. Interesting, considering what James has just said. But in righteousness you shall judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And that... I mean, people talk about the God in the New Testament being the God of love, and the God of the Old Testament is one of wrath. Well, I mean, all right, so Leviticus 19, we go ahead and we get this picture of who God is and what he values in his people. You will love your neighbor as yourself. This is like a, this is a, a crux of the law, and, and Jesus really clarifies that for us. In Mark 12, 28, and 34, if you turn there, he elaborates on this, on this law. And, uh, and again, I want to read the whole context because it seems like James has this in mind. He says in Mark 12, 28 through 34, they were seeking, wait, sorry. There we go. The one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, he being Jesus, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? We're talking about the law, we're thinking about all the things that God has told his people to do, all the ways that he's commanded for them to live and to be. And Jesus answered, the most important commandment is, 
Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he, uh, that he is one. There's no other besides him. To love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. So James, who's writing to a people scattered among the nations, he wants to remind them of what life in the kingdom of God is like. And when he looks at them and the way that they live and the patterns that they've adopted from the surrounding cultures, he's concerned that they're showing favoritism to people based on worldly standards and not seeing things based on reality. The reality, especially, of what God has done and of what God has actually called his people to do, which is to fulfill the law, which is to love one another. If you do this, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven, Jesus himself says. And so in James, he, he brings this up to tie it all together and to say what you're doing is, is actually, it doesn't line up with the law. If you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Well, wait a second. No, 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 no. I'm just showing partiality. I've just got my own special friends. I've got the people that I like and that I hang out with. We're, we're in the same sort of affinity group. We like the same stuff. That doesn't really disregard the law. I, mean, you know, I can still love them. James says, no. You know, if, if you live this way, you are completely disobeying the law. You miss one point, you miss the whole thing. And, and he, he goes on to say just as much, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you don't commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now here's, here's where we get into some, some hard truths, right? This is, this is just tough for us to read. Um, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, he says. The law of liberty. Uh, the NIV calls it the law that gives freedom. I mean, how, do you ever think of the law that way? When you're, when, I mean, be honest. When you're working through the Old Testament, it's, it's February, let's say, and, or well, even now, I guess, right? We're all kind of doing that in our reading plans, right? So you're working through the Old Testament. Right now, where are we at? Like Leviticus, Numbers, where are we at? Anybody doing this? Man, you guys are free from legalism. Good for you. Drew, where are you at? Numbers, okay, right? When you're reading Numbers, you know, or is the first thought on your mind, whoo, this is freedom. Here's life. I'm just running in the grace of the Lord. Right, it's not exactly the first thing you think about when you, when you start working through the Old Testament. But James, that's the first thing he thinks about. He calls it the law of liberty, the law that gives freedom. You know, so, so maybe, maybe we should, we, should pause, we should think about that. Why don't we think of the law that way? Why don't we think about God's rules and the precepts and his, his teaching? Why don't we think about those things as freedom, as life-giving, 
right? As, as, as walking in liberty. Why don't we think about it that way? I don't necessarily have an answer. Now, I will say, I, I think that our, just our church culture, uh, it just tends to be one that so emphasizes grace, we just, we just don't know what to do with obedience, we just don't know what to do because we're so afraid that we will, we will throw the Reformation out the window by, by, by saying that maybe there are things that we should do that we just decide not to, not to worry about it at all. And that's not right. I mean, Jesus, his Bible was the law. He didn't have Romans. He had Numbers. You know, and, 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 and so we gotta, we got to do something with that. And, and as James is pointing out, right, when we summarize the law, when we get down to the nitty-gritty, all that the law really is, is is a command from God to love him and to love one another. And when we show partiality and favoritism, we, we, we disobey and we disregard it altogether. But then he says something that's just, that's just harsh it sounding, that judgment is without mercy to one who's shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What do, we, what do we make of that? Mercy, if you don't show mercy to people, you, that this can't be in the Bible. Logan's going to talk next week about how Luther had such a hard time with the book of James. He, he, just, he just said, we can't, we just, you know, it's just too hard. It's too much. This probably is not God's word. Because he had such a hard time connecting the dots here. And Luther had his own concerns and things going on. But, but nevertheless, I mean, it, you know, when, when, we, when we read this, um, we, we maybe tend to, we're maybe tempted to feel like we have to, to rescue our friend Jimbo here. James didn't say, he didn't really know what he meant. He wasn't really saying that. I mean, I think he did. I think he knew exactly what he was saying. More importantly, I think the Holy Spirit, through him, knew exactly what we need to hear. And, and, and in fact, it's not all that far from anything Jesus has said. If you go to the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the who? The merciful. And why are they blessed? Because they'll be shown what? Mercy. You know, our, our understanding of grace, our understanding of the gospel, it has to have room um, for us to abide by the law, which sounds so silly when you think about it because that is what Jesus came to do, was to fulfill the law perfectly and give us his own righteousness. So, so why do we feel like obeying the law is somehow something that that we're above or that is counter to the gospel. It actually works right in line with it. And, and, and that's where James then takes us um, in the second half of chapter 2. He, he gets right down to it. Um, and, he, and he senses that, like many of us, we're hearing him tell us to do things according to the law to, to do things like show mercy and to, to love one another uh, and to not be judgmental towards one another and divisive and 
show partiality. He says, okay, no, these things aren't really actually in accordance with God's character and what God, God has told us to be like. And he, he knows that we're hearing that and going, yeah, but, but James, salvation is by grace alone through faith. You know, we're not justified by works of the law. That's what Paul says in Romans 3 and Galatians 2. We're not justified by works of the law. That is verbatim, Paul. So, James, maybe you have misunderstood some things. Because I'm just walking in freedom. I don't have to, God doesn't expect anything of me. And, and I, just, I just believe and I'm good. It doesn't matter how I treat one another. It doesn't matter how I live my life in the church. I just believe. I've got faith. And that's all, that's all that I need. And, and James is anticipating that and, and he gets right into it. Uh, in the second half of this, of this chapter. Before we move into that, does is, is anybody have any questions about the first half of the chapter? About all, you know, this talk of partiality and, and favoritism. Yeah, Hearn, uh, the younger. Is there a microphone anywhere? Anybody got one? You've got a good voice. You can. I love listening to the midweek fellowships when mm. I'm not here, so I appreciate people speaking to the microphone. Um, so when it talks about the law of liberty, like we see in the New Testament, like uh, it seems that the New Testament writers were like of, aware of another law, like, you know, the law of like law of Christ. You know, you can look at Romans 8, you know, they set you free from law of sin and death, you know, the spirit of law, spirit of life, um, as well as like in First Corinthians, or like uh, when he's talking about like, to someone under the law, I became under the law, though not really being under the law. So, like, what? So, when when uh, James is talking about the law of liberty, um, what makes you like what? Uh, why do we think the law of liberty is the Old Testament Levitical law, or like how would you define the yeah. law of liberty? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think he calls it the royal law. He calls it the law of liberty in in James one twenty five. He calls it the um, I think he calls it the law of liberty there as well, yeah. And the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Um, I mean, the fact that James refers to the royal law, the law of liberty, and then quotes from the Old Testament, I think is pretty indicative, kind of where he's coming from, what he's saying. I mean, James, and I think we, we know this right from last week, James is... The Jewish brother of Jesus. He grew up with the law. I mean, for him to say that there's some other law out there, or some like uh, abridged version that's the authoritative one for Christ, I mean, that, that would be for him, I think, really, really hard to stomach, you know? I mean, I can't imagine. Um, so I, I think it, it just seems just the most natural reading to assume that he's talking about the, the Old Testament law. And that he's actually now qualifying it, though. And he's giving it a term that we don't often think about it as. We, we think of the law as bad, bad, bad. You know, as some sort of, uh, you know, uh, of a, just an angry substitute teacher. You know, while we're waiting on the real one to show up, who's nice and gives us all straight A's. But, you know, the, the law is actually really good. I mean, if you, you can't read Psalm 119 and walk away from it feeling like the law is a bad thing. I mean, David is so clear. The law is, this is how I know who God is. This is how I know what he likes. This is how I please the Lord. 
And while that may not be language that we love to think about because we really are so concerned with, with making sure people know that we're saved just by Jesus' work alone, and that is true and important, right? Uh, it, it doesn't make the law any less good or any less valuable. When Paul talks about the law in Romans, as much as he has opportunity to say, you know, the law is, is awful and it's, I mean, it's basically as bad as sin itself, he doesn't. He says the law is perfect and holy and good. The problem is that I'm not. So we have to get past this idea that, that when they talk about the law of liberty, well, they can't be talking about numbers. <laughs> they can't. He surely does not mean, you know, uh, the, the, the Old Testament sacrificial system because that was not liberty-inducing. Uh, in one sense, okay, maybe it wasn't liberty giving just outright, but in another sense, it very much is. Because apart from the law, the work of Christ means nothing. I mean, outside of the law, the perfect substitutionary atonement of Jesus is, has no value. The law is, is how Jesus' work is so critical and how Jesus' work is so effective uh, is because it fits perfectly in line with, with what God demands and expects of his people. Um, yep. Appreciate that. Um, could you also yeah. talk a little bit about like uh, so when we're not the host in the story, but we're the rich man or the poor man? You know, when we're being told to sit by, you know, given the seat of honor, yeah. or you know, we are, or we see somebody being sat, sat in the corner, or we're being mistreated. Like, what what is does James have anything to sort of say about you know in that instance? Well, I don't think in this story that he has anything to say to those people. But I will say that, you know, throughout this, this, this letter, I think chapter one, especially, he, he does talk to the rich man and to the poor man. And he's got some very strong words, and he's very clear that, you know, your riches will diminish. They will, they will evaporate. Uh, and the poor man, you, you should actually rejoice in your position because what you don't see is the true wealth that you actually have in Christ. Um, so I think he has something to say to them. I, I don't think it's necessarily through that particular illustration because I think his point is very pointed at people who are making distinctions among brothers and sisters uh, and, and, and valuing people or evaluating people based on worldly standards. All right, let me, let me keep going because the second half is uh, obviously it's really important, but it, it does actually kind of piggyback on what we've been talking about here. And that's, that's really helpful to know. When we read this passage, we often just read it on its own, disjointed, kind of divorced from everything else. But it's actually, all right, it's in the context of disobeying the law by, by dishonoring one another, by disregarding one another. Um, I, I think that's, that's just worth noting. So he says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works? Can that faith save him? And then he gives another illustration. If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, oh, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? And you just see it, and it's almost kind of comical when you think about it. You know, I mean, you can just imagine somebody coming in from the bitter cold. I mean, they got maybe a, a, a T-shirt on and some ratty old shorts. They're clearly hungry. They haven't eaten in days. And they, they come in, and, and they're, just, they're on the verge of just passing out from exhaustion and hunger, hypothermia, whatever. And you say, man, is it cold outside? You need a jacket. You should have thought about eating dinner before you walked outside. That's what you should have done. I mean, it's kind of got that effect. You know, it's like, whoa, you need to learn how to read an audience. You know, that's not helpful. 
But not only is it not actually helpful, James's point is it demonstrates that you don't mean what you say. That what you're saying is not being said in, uh, and I use these words intentionally, in good faith. That's not a good faith effort to actually do what you're saying. You want me to be warm, you have the resources to make that happen, and yet all you've got for me is a well wish. Well, guess what? Well wishes don't keep me warm at night, you know? Well wishes are very difficult to digest. So maybe you can give me something more practical. And I think that's what James is, is really driving at here. What, like, let's talk about faith that is practical. Not ethereal, not abstract, not out there. Things that we just know, facts that we've accumulated and amassed, things that we just sort of say we believe. Now let's talk about faith that is practical. And, and so he says uh, that that would be no good. He says, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say... You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now the the logic of of this little passage has always kind of bothered me because it seems to me that when James is writing, he's saying, hey, some of you think that just having faith or saying you have faith rather is enough and you're not doing anything about it. I got a problem with that. And it seems like when he gets to this little guy interrupting him, that this guy is saying the opposite. It's like he's saying, you know, well, you have faith and I have works. Whereas James has been dogging out people who say they have faith but actually don't have works. You see see where I'm coming from? It just feels a little odd to me. And and so there are different ways that we can kind of maybe look at this and kind of make, make sense of it. I mean, maybe, maybe that's a legitimate way to think about it. You know, somebody just interrupts and says, hey, James, I got an objection here. I've got my faith, you, or you've, you've got your faith, I've got my works, you know. I, we don't need to have both. It can be either or. Maybe that's what, maybe that's what the argument is. Or, or maybe someone is kind of stepping in in James's mind here, because James is writing this, right? And, and just saying, hey, you know what, um, James, I hear what you're saying, but, you know, like, and maybe he's sort of talking off to the side to his friend or to someone in general. You know, you've got faith, I've got works. This is okay. You know, like, James, this is, this is fine. You know, we, we don't have to have it all. Or maybe James himself is just kind of interrupting his flow of thought and saying, you know, hey, someone could put out there this idea, you know, well, you've got faith and, and, and I've got works, right? You've got faith alone by itself, divorce from anything. i got works, though. And then goes on to say, show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by them. At any rate, in any case, whatever it may be, the, the point seems to be, and is very clearly, that there, there is not a distinction between faith and works. You, you cannot actually have true faith unless it is practical faith. You can't have true faith. Your faith is not real. It is an illusion. It is a ghost if there are no works with it. In the same way that we would say, you really don't care about that guy if you say, hey, you should get a jacket and don't give him one. We would say that that's not, you're, 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 you're being, you know, you're not being genuine. And James is saying the same thing. You're not actually being genuine. 
Someone will say, you have faith apart from your works. Show me your faith apart from your works. I'll show you my faith by what I do. You believe that God is one, and, and that's just a reference to, again, the Old Testament law. This is something that Jesus himself says, right, in Mark 12, which we read earlier. He points out that the first commandment, the Lord your God is one, you'll worship him only. You'll love him with all your heart, heart soul, mind, and strength. Okay, so you, you believe that? Great. Awesome. You know, by the way, the demons believe that as well, he says. Um, and, and not only do they believe, they actually tremble at that thought. Problem is, hopefully you realize that demons um, don't believe in a saving way. Demons will enter the lake of fire for all of eternity, right? We know this. We've seen how it ends. So they believe. They have faith. And that faith will not save them. And why won't it save them? Because it is actually not, it's not real. It's not legitimate. It has nothing to back it up. You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with those works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? And that's a reference to uh, Joshua, where Rahab receives, she's this Canaanite pagan, and she receives these Israelite spies on faith. I mean, she should not, right? She knows that if, if she's caught for this, she will be killed. She brings them in, just kind of knowing and trusting that the Lord is on their side and presumably on hers too if she does this. You know, if she, if she exhibits that she's actually with the Lord's people, that she's for them. Uh, and, and consequently for God and kind of, I, I, I want you to kind of be the one who's, who's overseeing me as well. And, and so she received the messengers. She sent them out by another way. And, and that way, she acted on her faith. As the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And, and so we, you know, as we're, as we're going through it, you know, at first it seems like a a difficult thing to hear. We start talking about the law and what do we do with that and how do we put the law into our lives. But James is, is clear. No, no, no. The law is not a substitute for faith. Works are not a substitute for faith. But faith without works, it can't even be called that. Verse 22, Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Uh, sorry, uh, verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works. What James is after is not works instead of faith. He's after an active faith. And, 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 and active faith, it, it shows itself. It's, it's put forward by actions, by, by things that we do. Um, and so really in, in the end, James is simply saying we're not saved by the law itself uh, only, you know, as if, as if, well, if I obey all these things, then I'm, I'm right with God, but rather we're, we're saved by faith, and, and the way that faith works is, is by obedience to, yeah, the, the law, and not just Christ's obedience on our behalf. That's true in one sense, but in another, as, as Christians, we're actually also called to live according to the commands that God has given us. And so we need to work out our salvation, as even Paul says in Philippians. 
Um, but there, there's a way to live that lines up with our faith. Uh, and, and, and so we, we always need to be mindful then of, of how we live. You know, and, 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 and so showing partiality to one another becomes a much bigger deal uh, because it might belie that we actually don't have faith. It might actually show that we don't really value those who know the Lord because we don't actually value the Lord himself. And that's, that's, not, that's not what you want to hear. That's not where you want to be found. Um, we want to love the Lord, and, and we want to do so in a way that, that shows it, that proves it, um, that illustrates it. All right. Any, um, any questions? I'll stick around for sure. We may not be able to ask many. I know we're at 7.30. If you need to go pick up your kids, go, go do that if you, if you need to. They can come and hang out in here. Yeah, Joe. I just want to type this in. Uh, if you look in 1 John chapter 2, starts talking about how our works are a test of our faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, in verse 4, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. In him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Yeah. By this we may know that we are in him. If you tie that into Revelations where it talks about us being judged by our works, that the, when Christ is judging the world on his throne, it's going to be the book is going to be pulled out with the works of the dead, and we're included in that, in that debt. It's not just sinners yeah. or those apart from God. We're going to be judged by the works that we did, but those our works are brought about by the faith that is in us. It's not works we're doing on our own, so the motivation behind that faith is different. Yeah, yeah, it's helpful. Drew Cephas. I just want to make sure I'm looking at this right, because in verse 24 it says you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And the way to understand that would be that he's saying the type of faith, when he says faith alone, he's referring back to what he was talking about earlier when he was saying the type of faith that's just simply like an intellectual agreement. That's basically what he's talking about. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, let's. Uh, I, mean, I think he's saying a little bit more than that, though. Sure. He's sure. not just saying faith as in intellectual agreement. I mean, I think he's, I think he, I think he would say, and is saying, essentially, faith without works, it's just not faith. You can call it faith, but that's not what it is. What, what we need when we say we have to have faith, right, yeah, it's, it's more than just intellectual assent, but that it, it does carry itself out. It acts itself out. Um, so, so, yeah, I mean, what James, I think, really is arguing for is a much broader uh, understanding of what faith is. And it's one that a lot of us just aren't comfortable with. Pablo. I had a my candy. Um, Here we go. I've heard, I, so I've read a couple of folks that, the real, you know, kind of hinge scriptures in this passage that are troubling are where, in it, you know, when it's saying that Abraham was justified by his works and that, you know, Rahab was justified by her works. But then he kind of goes you know, seemingly schizophrenic for a minute. Uh, and he says that Abraham, he quotes from Genesis 15, where he says, Abraham believed God yeah. and it was credited to him as righteousness. So he was made righteous yeah. by <clears throat> his faith. I mean, he says that within a couple sentences and within the same train of thought. 
Um, have you have you read or what are your thoughts on maybe James' sort of use of the word, uh, at least as it's translated in the SV, justification, is maybe not the same justification that we think of typically when we're talking about justification by faith, um, by grace, it, like actually the act of being made right um, with God. Yeah. Um, so justification is... So it's, you know, it's a legal term, it, it, you know, you think of like a justice, you know, a judge makes a decision, and when you're justified, you know, it's to say, hey, you're, you're righteous, you know, like you, you, are, you are not guilty, you are cleared by the law. It's not just that I'm, I'm overlooking your crime committed, it's that I'm saying you didn't commit a crime. Um... I think Peter, and I mean, I think James, I think Paul, I think, I think they're using justification in the same way. I think what they're not using in the same way are the words faith and works. You know, when Paul says you're justified by faith and not by works, he, he means those two things as, as in opposition to each other. You're justified by faith, not by works. As in, you know, don't, don't tell me, don't come at me telling me that if all you do is, you know, I'm circumcised and I obey the law and I'm good. No, that is not enough. That's not going to do it. Whereas James here, his definition of, 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 of works and faith and being justified by works in particular, you know, is, you know, he, what he's really getting at is a much more kind of, how do I put it? It's like he's thinking more long term. You know, I mean, we're, we're justified right now. I mean, how many of us are actually seated in, on the throne, you know? Like, how many of us are, are, are right there, you know? I mean, have, have any of us passed through heaven's gates, so to speak? None of us have. You know, and it'll be at that moment that things have kind of actually been kind of, like, sealed off, you know? Uh, it'll be at that moment that everything is, has happened that, that you, you've been putting your hope in the whole time. But the Bible is very clear that, in, in a sense, it's actually already happened, that we are justified, you know, um, that we actually already do sit with Christ in the, in the heavenly places. Um, I don't ever, I don't always feel that way, you know, but that, but it is actually a present reality. And I think, I think James is thinking more in, in that kind of vein of, you know, your, your works, these things, these things are the kind of the proof in the pudding and they carry us out. And I'll say this too, to that point, you know, when he says that that for Abraham his faith was counted as righteousness, uh, maybe, I don't think I'm wrong on this. He's referring to an event, to a statement that was proclaimed over Abraham before he sacrificed Isaac. So, you know, we read that, we may think like, oh, you know, he's saying, actually, I, want, I do want to make sure of that. I think I'm right. But, you know, we, we do want to make sure, I mean, uh, it's, you know, it seems like he at first is saying, you know, oh, yeah, so he sacrificed his son, and then God said, hey, you know what, you're righteous. Everything's good. But the reality is that God said, hey, you know what? You're, you're righteous by faith. Everything is good. And then James, car- I mean, then Abraham carried it out. He carried out that justification by sacrificing his son. Or, you know, almost doing it. Um, and, and so when James is talking here being justified, he's thinking long term. A lot of times Paul, I think, is getting more at the kind of the immediate Hey, you're justified by faith. You're not justified by works. It's not what you do that earns your right standing with God. If anything, that ruins everything. 
Whereas James is saying, hey, you know, that, that faith without works, it doesn't really mean a whole lot, though. I mean, James is very much, he's, he's, he's a good qualifier for what Paul means. We need James. We need James. But Joseph, you had a, you had a question. And then we'll, I'm going to pray, and then we'll be... Yeah, yeah, I think so. I mean, I, you know, it, it, he asks, is James re- responding to people who might be abusing Paul? And I, think that's, I think that's a really legitimate possibility. You know, I, I'm not sure exactly the timeline of when these letters were written and kind of which came first, you know. Um, but I, I think it's actually a pretty, like a pretty decent argument, and, and I think one that's, that's made commonly, that James was written after Paul, or, or at the very least that James was writing this letter uh, after Paul's ideas and, and, and what I had, had circulated. And so James, he, he agrees with Paul. We know that he agrees with Paul, right? We read Galatians and Paul goes to James. Paul uses this as proof that what he's saying is legitimate because I, I went to James and James was cool with it, you know? And, and so we know that James and Paul are, are buds. You know, they don't have any problem with each other. Um, so it's not like we're not pitting James against Paul, but... I do think that it's possible to read Paul and to really go unhinged. So it doesn't matter what I do. And James was probably dealing with some people in that way. And he was saying, hey, you know what? Slow it down, though. I mean, Paul, Paul didn't mean that. Uh, there, there, there's some way. Because, I mean, he's very clearly using, I mean, he's using very similar language to Paul. I mean, this is the most Pauline part of his letter. And so it seems intentional. Let me, let me pray for us, and I'll stick around and answer any questions. Sorry for keeping you guys late. Um, God, thank you for your word. We thank you that uh, as complex as your word is, the, the truth of the gospel is so simple. And in truth, the, the truths of your word that we find here are really very simple. That Jesus Christ died to save sinners. That you have, from the before time, determined to, to save your people by your own work, your own hand. Um, you draw us to faith, and you give us a faith with legs that, that works, that acts. It's by your Holy Spirit that we're empowered to obey the law. We're under no illusions that we can do this on, on our own. We know that it is all truly, ultimately dependent on your grace toward us. The breath that we breathe, uh, that enables us to, to do anything. It comes from you. So we ask that you would be with us this week. Help us to abide by these words, to to seek to obey you, not to earn your favor, not to earn salvation, but to, to carry to completion uh, the, the, the justification that is by faith. Now, the reformers said that we were justified by faith alone, but the faith that justifies is not itself alone. And so we need, we need to uh, give, well, I just pray that you give us hearts. Um, that long to, to serve you, and that our faith would be strengthened as we do. In Jesus' name, amen.